We continue our sermon series in First Peter. If you're a guest, first time coming, we're in this series in First Peter. And today we will be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not in a compulsion, but willingly, as God would have it. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a saving crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the crowd. What are the shaping influences in your life? That's actually a question, a really good question that you would ask someone if you were really trying to get to know them. Like what their story is. And there, there's a lot of answers to that question. What are the things that people that have shaped you? It could be your parents. You were growing up in your home, doing work at Could be your schooling. Could be a season of suffering. Could be a tragic event that's happened in your life. Could be a college professor, pastor, mentor. And there are so many shaping influences that we have in our life. Well, that is also true of the church. There are shaping influences in the life of the church. Politics can shape the church. Current events can shape the church. Culture can shape the church. And yet we read here from Peter, the author of this letter, there's a one thing is to shape the relational life of a church. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ shape the relational life of the church? Well, before we answer that question, I want to answer the question, what is the gospel? But if that's doing the changes, then what exactly is the gospel? We'll look at verse 1. So I endorse you, Peter says, the elders among you as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. As well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Peter sums up the gospel. He's got a book in it. With the sufferings of Christ and the glory of Christ that's going to be revealed. Suffering and glory. The gospel is the good news. That's literally what the word means. It's the story of the life, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ. Suffering the Christ. What does that mean? It means that God is not immune to your pain. Nor is God distant and removed from the pain, darkness, evil in this world, even in the midst of a pandemic. God is not removed. God is not immune to it. And he has shown that because he actually put on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and entered into it. 
He cares so much about the suffering of the world and your suffering that he put it on himself in the person of Jesus Christ and died a criminal death. The suffering of your soul. But he didn't say, great, three days later, he was. He ascended into heaven to be the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back. Jesus is coming back to finally set things right. The glory of Christ will be revealed. That's the gospel. That's the story of Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. But our story is a very different story, at least when we come into this world. We come into this world with a very different story. Story of pain, story of despair, story of darkness, story of tragedy, story of hopelessness. We all come into the world with some version of that story. It's the story that actually Peter had at one point in his life. When he denied knowing Jesus Christ three times, like Christ moved to the cross, Peter was left in utter despair, utter darkness, utter hopelessness. And yet we read here that he says, now he's a partaker of the glory of God. That word partaker means to share, to participate in. So you have Peter now sharing the story of Christ. The story of Christ has become Peter's story. How does the story of Christ become your story? Your faith. Trusting what Jesus has done for you. Christ's story doesn't become your story because you grew up in church. Christ's story doesn't become your story because your parents are there. Christ's story doesn't become your story because you live a relatively good life. Christ's story becomes yours when you personally trust him and what he's done for you. And when you trust Christ, you become a part of this community of people who have put their trust in Christ. That's the church. A community of broken, sinful people who have been rescued by Christ. The question becomes, when you match together a bunch of broken, sinful people into what we would call a church, how does the gospel change the relational life within that community? How does the gospel shape the relational life within the church? First, we're going to see it shapes the calling of leaders. It shapes the calling of leaders. Now, Peter here addresses elders in this young, early church. He addresses elders. But this applies beyond elders. It applies to anyone who is in the place of leading or shepherding Caring for people in God's church. So certainly elders, deacons, pastors, but community groups. Or if you're in a Bible study, or maybe you're a college student and you're a senior in college, and in this fall, you're going to lead some freshmen in a little small group study. You're in the place of leading caring for people. The gospel changed the call of leaders. Look at verses 2 to 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not over compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not down the for those who are charged, but being examples to the flock. 
Peter describes the calling of a leader. And then he describes how that calling works itself. Now notice what he is calling leaders. He doesn't call them CEOs. He doesn't call them kings or queens or dictators. He calls them shepherds. And that is the imagery throughout the entire Bible of what leaders are, what they're called to. They're called as shepherds. King David was a shepherd. So leaders in the Old Testament are elders of Israel in Ezekiel 34, and they were called by for not fulfilling their duties, were called as shepherds and were failing as Even Peter, when Peter denied Christ three times, and then he was finally restored by Christ after Christ had risen from the dead. How did Christ restore him? Three times he said to him, Feed my sheep. And of course, of course, the next four years, it addresses Jesus as the chief shepherd and God's sin. Jesus defined him as the shepherd. So the calling of leaders is the calling to be a shepherd. Now, what does that mean? How does the calling of shepherd work itself out? Well, first, you see, it's not under compulsion, but willingly. Oh, willingly. Now, why is that important? Well, in the first century, in this early church, it was under severe attack. We've seen it in the study of this letter. They were mocked, they were persecuted, they were insulted. And so to be an elder in this young church, that elder was putting himself on the front line. Was seeing the blows and the attacks. There was a call. So leadership, what does it mean? In our day, in places in the world where it's illegal to convert to Christ, or if you get baptized, you get put in prison. Okay, the cost of being a shepherd leader in that church or that community is costly because you put a part on your chest as the leader of this church. And even in our world today, where there is this freedom of worship, freedom to gather, like the weight of caring for people, if you're caring for people, as a shepherd leader, you know the weight of that. There's a cost to it. And so Peter says, a leader recognizes the cost and then willingly steps into that. Not forced in that way. Not guilted in that way. Not pressured in that way. Right? Not doing it because of how I actually created an idea. We'll talk about that. But just saying willingly to see the cost and step in. And that's a shepherd leader. Second, Way in which we see the calling of shepherd get worked out is an eagerness to give, not get. To give and not get. Look at verse 2. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, this strikes at the heart of motivation. It says that the motivation is not for shameful gain. Now, when you hear that phrase, I don't know about you, but the first thing I think about is the greedy, money-hungry televangelist that used the Bible, used the name of Christ, like we get rich. Like we have all those scandals that happen in our recent history. And certainly that's, that's what shameful means, that's what shameful means. Like, use the name of Christ to get rich. Use the Bible to get rich. But there's a more subtle scandal that's out there for me. Well, I think it's much more day-to-day Christian. And that is the gain of honor, prestige, and reputation. 
to use a position of leadership to gain a name that you've always had, or a pat on the back that you've always needed, or a status or a reputation. And when you do that, the people that you are caring for become fun in your hands. They become utilities. They become used to feed yourself. That this is the indictment that God chose on the, the elders and the shepherds of Israel in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 34. God said, you're feeding yourselves, you're not feeding the sheep. And when he said, you're stuffing yourselves and you're starving. Shepherd leaders give. Give and give and give that great cost to themselves. Third way in which the calling of shepherd gets worked out is leadership out front, not top down. Out front, not top down. Look at verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That word domineering means to rule over. That is a top down authority structure. Peter says, No, shepherd leaders are examples. They lead from outside of the flock. To use the example of a shepherd and a sheep. Uh, the shepherd leader is like the sheep with a bell. Okay, what's that mean? Well, in a small flock, a shepherd will take a bell and attach it around the neck of a good trusted sheep. And then that sheep with the bell on is instrumental in moving the flock from point A to point B. The sheep with the bell on is simply looking at the shepherd, looking for instruction, and then moving. That's the picture of what it means to lead from out front. Not driving, not domineering. It means modeling. So, a shepherd leader is to lead your picture. Shepherd leader is not cracking the whip saying, You have a repent. Shepherd leader says, I'm going to repent. Because I'm the great thing. I'm the great and we'll lead to humbly modeling out what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. The gospel shapes the relational life of the church by shaping the calling of Jesus. But second, and closely related, the gospel shapes the relational life of the church by shaping an understanding of authority. An understanding of authority. Now, as soon as I say that word, to some degree, in a room like this, there are visceral reactions. You may not show it on your face, but in your heart, there's a reaction. Because we are a culture that's come to question authority. And in some ways, it's a good reason. Because authority has been abused. Authority has been dismantled. And we can look at organizations, we can look at churches, but across the map, where authority has been abused and dismantled. And yet, what Peter is saying here, and what the Bible teaches is don't throw the baby out in the bathroom. is not the problem. Right? Authority is not the problem. That's God's mission. Authority is actually a gift from God. The way it's used can be problematic. And so we learn here how the gospel shapes an unright understanding of the or the right use of the Yeah, one word. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appeared, 
You will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is a loaded verse. This speaks into the proper understanding of the story from two perspectives. From the perspective of the leader who is giving care to people, and from the perspective of the one being led, of the one being shepherd. So, you are either reading or being led, and then you're doing both in different times. This verse speaks into the first, the perspective of the leader and understanding of the Lord. Says Jesus is the chief shepherd. Shepherd leaders are under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Leaders are under shepherds. Now, as a leader, if you functionally don't grasp this, this sets you up for an incredibly dangerous attitude. Let me explain what that dangerous attitude is at the least. If you don't understand Christ as the chief shepherd, the dangerous attitude is a Messiah complex or a Savior complex, where you believe you're basically a stand in for the Lord. You're responsible to save people, you're responsible to change people's behavior, you're responsible to uh, make people repent. And so that attitude, that dangerous attitude, produces two incredibly destructive behaviors. Control and manipulation. You start controlling people. You start manipulating people to get them to do what you want. And when they don't do what you want, you wrap it down and control even more. This is left unchecked. At the extreme, this is what produces a cult leader. This is what produces cult. Where someone in the name of Christ draws obedience to themselves and is only due to Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd. And the shepherd leader, you are called to point people to the chief shepherd. That's what God says to you. That's Christ's job. And so that's from the perspective of leader. But verse 4 also speaks into the understanding of authority from the perspective of the person being led, from the person being shepherded or cared for. How does it do that? Well, simply put, the person leading you or the person shepherding you is not you. They're under shepherd. And that means three things. Number one, they can't save you. Number two, they're not perfect. Their counsel is not always going to be perfect. And number three, they're not omnipresent. Which means they're not always present. They're not always available. They're accessible, but they're not always available. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. Both parties, whether they're reading, or being led, both parties are looking to a better person. And that's the person of Christ. Because Christ is perfect. His word and counsel is all perfect. He does save, and he can save. And he's not perfect. He's always always available to the Holy Spirit. This relationship, understanding of authority and relationship between leader and one being led, 
I think we do. Well pictured by an orchestra and how an orchestra functions. You think about an orchestra. There's a conductor. Right? The conductor is up front. The conductor leads guys to the entire orchestra. But within the orchestra, there are little groups of different instruments. And within those groups, there's a first chair position. Let's go for example. There's a, there's a first chair trumpet. And then there's all the rest of the trumpet players. And the way it works is all the musicians in that group look to the first chair for guidance and leadership. If they have a question, they ask the first chair musician. If that musician can't answer or there's a disagreement, they can not their step in, clear things up. But the conductor is leading the entire orchestra, but the conductor delegates some of the authority to those first chair positions so that the orchestra runs well, more efficiently, and more quickly. So when you think about that in the context of the church, Jesus Christ is the conductor. First chair musicians are the elders, shepherd leaders of various sorts. And those being led are the musicians. That's a, a, a picture of how authority should work in the life of the church and how the gospel takes authority in the life of the church. How does the gospel shape the relational life of the church? It's the calling of leaders. It shapes the understanding of authority. And then third, it shapes the attitude toward others. The attitude toward others. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. What does that mean? That just means be subject to, be to trust, to follow. To use an orchestra example, you're a musician in, in a group of instruments. Be subject to the elder means just trust and follow the first chair position. And as you're looking for the conductor, those parties looking for the conductor, looking at the Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is calling for mutual humility. That means leader shows humility towards those who are leading. That means one being led shows humility towards those that are leading or shepherding you. Mutual humility. Now, what is, what is humility? What is humility? Well, C.S. Lewis is uh, his and he introduces this definition of it by saying this as he's preparing to unpack what humility is. He says, If you think you are not conceited, you are very conceited indeed. He said, If you think you're not conceited, you're very conceited indeed. What do you mean by that? Well, if you think you're humble, and not prideful. The problem is you're, you're thinking about yourself. Right? Which is the definition of, of pride. So humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. You say, well, how do I think about myself less? That's the number one struggle that every human being has in this world as a fallen person. How do I think about myself less? How does the gospel empower that? 
Well, the point is that in verse 1, when Peter describes himself as a partaker in Christ's glory, he's starting to get a Because the problem of pride, which pride is just thinking about yourself all the time, right? It's processed in the world, everyone around you, as an event, everything is processed through the way of self. That's just that's the pride. You're thinking about yourself all the time. This problem began in Genesis 3, when our first parents opposed God, set themselves up against God, decided they were going to be independent of God. And when they made that choice, the glory and the honor that had been bestowed upon them by God was removed. And so they were left trying to seek glory and seek honor outside of God in the created world. And so they began that. They, they became glory hall. Everything in the created world now was there to help feed their need for glory and honor. And they passed down their glory hall to us. That's why we're born into the world. That's glory hall. That's self-centered. The need for glory, glory and honor is God-given. The problem is we will never find or be satisfied by any glory or honor that you find in the world or from another person. Pride is thinking, if you boil it down, pride is seeking glory and honor through life. It's using other people's lives, situations, what they say, what they don't say, right, to seek glory and honor. And you'll never be satisfied. With that. The only glory and honor that will satisfy us is what comes from the Father. And in Ephesians 2, there's a remarkable verse that we scratch our heads at. But this is what it means. In Ephesians 2, when it says that if you're in Christ, you trust in Christ, you're seated in the heavenly realm with God in Christ. That's a head trap. You're not seated in the heavenly realm right now. You're seated in the university center in Jacksonville, Florida, on this earth. So what's that mean? What it means is that in Christ, you receive the same honor and glory that Jesus the Son received from the Father's glory. That God bestows that glory and honor on you as he does on his Son, Jesus. And that when that glory and honor bestowed upon you, you're satisfied. And you don't have to think about yourself. You're free from having to think about yourself all the time or seek that glory glory and honor in the created world. You don't have to feel like that. So that's what humility is, the gospel empowers it. But then what does it look like? How do you express that humility? Because that's the call is to clothe yourself with humility toward one another. What does that expression look like? Well, let me get really practical in our current cultural world. More than ever, more than ever, this is a time that calls for humility toward one another. Because this pandemic has created such fertile ground for God. Such fertile ground for God. For one another. If they have. Let me give you two examples. Non mask wearers? Yes, I'm the third. Look at mask wearers. 
and say, choose to have this with you. Choose to have them not trusting God's protection. I just wish they were more like me. They were more free. And they were resting in God's protection. And they didn't have to wear that thing. That's where looking non naturally and think to themselves, who the hell? But they don't understand that the mask is about protecting us and loving us. I wish that they would love people and protect people so well that time. Did you want to look at that? Those that are sending their kids to school. Yeah, I'm going to go there. We're going to wind it up here a little bit. Those that are sending their kids to school, look at those who are not sending their kids to school. And think to themselves, oh, I just wish those that were not so fearful. I just wish they would trust God's protection. We can protect our we that were more like more likely than that. Just have a freedom of my head. Those that are not sending their kids to school, look at those that are sending their kids to school and say, oh my goodness, too bad they are so irresponsible. And sending their kids into such a horrible environment. I wish they were more like me, more responsible. Now, look, I'm just giving you two examples. I can give you ten more. In the pandemic, what's the what is the common ground in there? Self is at the center, and and seeking glory and honor through someone else's decisions and actions. Like I'm right there wrong, I feel better about myself. When the gospel empowers us to not. Think about ourselves. It empowers us to think charitably about it. Because the glory and honor that we're all seeking the glory hall has been answered through the Father. The Father has set glory and honor upon us in Christ, and we are free to not have to think about it. Or have to seek that honor. In the third century, there were a group of Christians who emerged. They were inspired by the life and reputation of a man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus comes up in Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2. And he says this, chapter 2, verse 30. So he, Epaphroditus, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This group of believers became known as the Parabolani. And that was based off the Greek word for risking in Philippians 2.30, describing the Pathologian. And this was a, a group of people who began in uh, Carthage in AD 252 and went on for several hundred years. And the typical people that were willing to risk everything for the sake of God. When you're talking about like many other cities at that time, Carthage was a city that was all vulnerable to the plague. And when the plague would hit the city, uh, it would be devastating, merciless, and it passed death, destruction, 
And so this, this actually happened. The plague hit Carthage in AD 232. Local authorities acted quickly. They removed the dead bodies. They, they, they took people that had been contaminated. They, they put them outside the city walls. But the church also responded. And the response was led by the bishop of Carthage. Do you think bishop? Bishop acted elder. His name is Tiffany. And he called the church together and invited them to go and live among the sick and the dying. That this group of people challenged them to, to give up their comfort, give up their security, and serve others. And so this group of one army became a people that served the broken, the poor, the forgotten, the vulnerable, the hurting. What's striking about this example is that the church's response was very different in the world. Like in the play in the third century, where the response was self-preservation. Hunger down, preserve self, and yet the church responded very differently. The church actually responded outwardly. They had the, the, the security, the glory, the honor, the protection of the Father. And so they began serving those. They looked outside themselves. Now, I'm not using this example to talk about irresponsible risk-taking in the pandemic. What I am saying, though, is that this is a, you see the throughout scripture and you see it in real life. When suffering hits, and the pandemic has caused the entire world to suffer, when suffering hits, the natural response is to play it. It's a name game. It's to turn to self-preservation. And yet, the gospel empowers us to do just the opposite. The gospel empowers us to serve. Because the gospel tells us we have a chief shepherd who's coming back to set things right. We're secure. Our future is secure. If you're in Christ, your future is secure. You have the resources in the gospel to be a person that's about loving others. And that's what clothes yourselves with humility and all the rest. You know, when Peter wrote this, clothe yourself with humility, it literally means to tie on an apron. You know who Peter was probably thinking about when he wrote this? His Lord Savior, Jesus Christ, who tied on an apron and walked with him. So he says to the church, tie on an apron to him. Serve him. God shapes the relational life of the church. It shapes the calling of leaders to be about service and sacrifice, not gain. It calls leaders of those being led to fix their eyes on the chief shepherd Jesus Christ. And it calls the community of the church, the people, the relational life, the relational community of the church to be one of mutual humility towards one another. Oh, Father, you have served us so well. You sent your son Jesus to put on flesh, to live, to suffer, to die, to raise, to sin, and be coming back. Oh, the love of Jesus. 
towards one another. It's part of that. The glory of God, the Father, that you have bestowed on us in Christ, and you would say we are seated in the heavenly realms because you treat us to that kind of honor and glory. Would you cause us to rest in something that that we wouldn't be seeking glory and honor through anyone else or anything in this world? Because Father, would you free us to be a people? We don't have to think about ourselves, that we can look outward and that we can serve, that we can clothe ourselves in humility, speak and act terribly towards one another, be a sick and I know, be in this world that is very much about self-preservation now, to be a very different group, a different society, a different culture that is outward facing and all about serving. And may that be you born out of the strength that you find in you, Jesus, that you came to serve us. And that they would be responsible in your strength to serve us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.